1 Corinthians chapter 10, who's ready? Let's pray. Father, you are good. Thank you for everything that you do. Lord Jesus, thank you that there's joy in the room, that people laugh, smile. Uh, we have a, we're your people. But we're not curmudgeonly like Pastor Nick spoke of Pastor Jeremy. We are fun, loving people. And you made us that. Thank you. And you're continuing to sanctify us and make us that. Thank you, Lord God. Lord Jesus, as we get into your word, this very strong piece of text, we pray that your Holy Spirit conviction would be in this room, sanctifying us and making us more and more holy in your sight through the power of your Spirit in the name of your Son and his gospel, Jesus Christ. We truly want to be your people. Thank you for this opportunity that you have brought us into to be encouraged in your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Now, before we get into chapter 10, look, it's been five weeks since we've been in Corinthians. So go back to chapter 8 really quick, and let's remember the context. Because this is a diatribe. This is a, a lengthy teaching that spans three chapters that's really answering just one question. And that question can be found in chapter 8, verse 1. And although this question may seem foreign to us, as pastors here at the church, we get questions like this all the time. You know, uh, in the first century in Corinth, with all the pagan temples that people were getting saved out of, the question was concerning food to idols. Can we eat this meat that's been discounted that we find in the meat markets that has been associated with the pagan temple? Now, the questions today, we're not worried about pagan temple meat today. But we have a lot of questions about, can I watch an R-rated movie that's not the Passion of the Christ? You know, my son James went to Ohio with some friends from college last night. He was sending me, I was already asleep. Saturday nights, I'm asleep about 8.30. But I woke up this morning. He, is, he went to the Stevie Nicks Billy Joel concert in Ohio. Drove five and a half hours because he knows what good music is. So I woke up this morning to uh, Stevie Nixon and singing Landslide and Billy, Billy Joel. <laughs> Billy Joel singing uh, Vienna Waits for you. Uh, now some of you want to leave the church and we're all a bunch of pagans. And, right? but, but some of us, our consciences are, are clean. We, we believe that uh, all music, all beauty uh, comes from God ultimately. And we can enjoy some things that other people may not think they can enjoy. You know, I told you a couple weeks ago, uh, and I don't want to belabor this because we got a lot to do, but I told you, I mean, I grew up in a family. My mom's people are Foothill Appalachian people. They come from a denomination called the Mountain Assembly. Now, if some of you are from like holiness traditions, Wesley, Wesleyan holiness uh, that moved into Pentecostalism, Church of God, church, uh, all those uh, assemblies that got all those, all those churches, well, those churches are here. The Mountain Assembly is Way up here in terms of holiness expectations. We, we grew up thinking that having playing cards in the house, was a, it was a sin to have them. Well, I'm just playing hearts. I'm just playing spades. Sinner! 
You couldn't have playing cards because it was associated with gambling. So when I got saved, I had to stop playing hearts and I had to stop playing spades and I had to definitely stop playing Texas Hold'em because that was, man, woo! That was, you get the seat next to Satan in hell. And I got rid of all of them. But over a couple years, I realized, you know, that, that Rook and Uno how could they be any better than the playing cards I was playing spades and hearts with? So my conscience grew, and I was able to enjoy uh, card games again with my friends. But we're all on different levels, and we have these situational questions. Can a Christian do this? Can a Christian not do this? Should every Christian homeschool their kids? Is public school okay? Uh, who do I vote for in, in the election? What, what, if, you know, what if my politics it looks a little differently than the person sitting next to me? Uh, uh, you know, I, I hate Macs. I'm a, I'm a, 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 a Windows guy, and this guy's a Mac guy. I don't know if we can be friends, even though we're both Christians. You can be friends. <laughs> right? This is the question, though. Are we free in Christ? If our conscience does not, if scripture doesn't forbid and our conscience is not bothered, are there things we can do because we have freedom in Christ? The answer is yes. Put up that first slide with the yes, no, no, yes, no. Because here's how Paul answers the question. Can we eat this meat that comes from the pagan idols? Paul says yes and no. Of course you have freedom. If the Bible doesn't forbid it, and your conscience is clean, of course you can eat meat that you get for discounted prices in the temples. But there are times if you're around weaker brothers that you should abstain because your freedom is not important than the discipleship and the spiritual growth of weaker Christians around you. So in some situations, the answer is yes. And in other situations, the answer is flat no. And Paul expounds all this in chapter 8. And in chapter 9 and moving into chapter 10, look at this decision tree. This is how Paul makes decisions based on his freedom and uh, his conscience and the conscience of others. Now, one thing I want to make clear again, if the Bible forbids it, it doesn't matter what your conscience says. If the Bible, we're going to talk about four things today. The Bible absolutely forbids. Number one is idolatry. Number two is sexual immorality. Number three is testing God. And number so all you people from the prosperity gospel movement, you, that one's going to punch you in the face. So number four, grumbling, which we haven't talked about that yet in 1 Corinthians, but grumbling's coming up today. There are some things the Bible says don't do. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. If the Bible says no, the answer is don't do it. Don't do it. But what if the Bible doesn't specifically forbid? Then we go to the second question. Does my conscience allow it? And you might grow. Right now you might say, playing cards, not in my house. Five years from now, you may be hosting spades tournaments. <laughs> or Texas Hold'em for pennies. You know, it's just... Does my conscience allow it? The answer is Yes. Then you move to these next questions. How is this going to affect other Christians around me? How is this going to affect non-Christians? Am I going to be able to reach people in, in my actions? What is the effect on my own spiritual life? This is how Paul is teaching people to be mature Christians. Don't do what the Bible forbids. 
If your conscience allows, man, have freedom in Christ and enjoy yourself. Unless there's a weaker brother that you might offend, then lay your rights down in that moment. As Paul did in chapter 9, he said, man, I'm working hard for you guys. I deserved a salary, but I didn't take one from you because I didn't want you to think I was just another charlatan selling hair tonic uh, to the bald people in Corinth. Right? So I worked a job. And I didn't ask anything from you. I laid my rights down for your sake so that you would trust me and trust the words that I was proclaiming to you. There are times where we need to. Our freedom doesn't trump helping other people grow in Christ. Sometimes we lay our freedoms down. So sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no. And this is how you should be thinking if you're in one of these situations. Now we move to chapter 10. Which begins with the word for, right? Paul is continuing this diatribe that he's working on, on how we make decisions based on our conscience and the consciences of other Christians. And remember the last thing he said that he's building off of when he's talking about laying down his rights for the good of others around him, which all of us, even in our freedoms, should be willing to do for the sake of others. We should love one another well. The world should know we truly believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by how we love one another. I can't wait to get to Galatians, which is coming up after Zechariah. And then we're going to Luke, right? Luke. Ah, We'll be there for like 10 years. Not really, (laughs) but maybe. He says we should be willing because we shouldn't be like athletes. Look up at uh, chapter 9, verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I'm not out there just, just running to be a part or running to say I was in a competition I'm disciplining my body. I will lay down my rights so that I can win the race that I'm running. He says we shouldn't be like those that box the air. I love that. When a a Christian intentionally and with gospel meaning and purpose behind it, when we throw a punch, it should strike the target in which we are trying to hit. We're We're not Michael Scott and Dwight fighting in the dojo. Landing no punches and just swinging wildly like a high school girl fight, if you remember that sermon. No. When we strike, we need to hit what we're striking at. And then Paul goes into the warning that we're about to read now. And this is going to be heavy. And we need this kind of conviction especially in the world we live in right now because God has a purpose and a plan for us right now. I say this all the time, but please hear me. We are responsible to steward the gospel in our generation, in our time. With the rest. Charles Spurgeon, even though there's a legacy and his sermons are still out there, he's not responsible for this generation. He was responsible in the 1850s and 60s when he lived. 
Martin Luther, John Calvin, they were responsible for the time in which they lived. But how many of you know we need revival now? We need reformation now. How, how does God, through the power of his spirit, bring new reformation? How does uh, God, now through his Holy Spirit, through the gospel, bring revival to broken hearts? How does he save souls through the stewardship of the gospel, through his people? And it's our turn, and it's our time. So we need this warning. We need to feel the conviction of it as we wrap it up at the end in the great assurance that Jesus gives us. Okay? Four, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... Now remember, he's talking to the church in Corinth. And are there Jews there? Yep. But there's also, on half this church at least, is Gentile believers who have gotten saved from the pagan temples and have come into the church and now there is no Jew or there is no Greek. It's just Christians in Christ. One people, one church. Which is why Paul can even say to the Gentiles, Are this thing God's been doing from Abraham, you're now a part of it. Even though you weren't, you were far off. You've now been joined and made one new man in Christ. The church of Jesus Christ right now. Jew and Gentile together. The greatest DEI program ever in history. You can't trust the government to do it. The government can't even get mail to your house through the post office. They can't do it. What does it? What really brings people together? People from different languages, people from different cultures, people from different ethnicities. What really brings us together and helps us love one another the way humans should? The gospel. It's the cross that is the great equalizer. It is the cross where all men uh, kneel equal before God. And what, what equalizes us? We're all in the same boat. We're sinners. If you're from Europe, you're a sinner. If you're from Australia, you're a sinner. If you're from South America... You're a sinner if you're from America. You're a sinner if you're from Africa. You're a sinner. The cross brings us all to the same point and then saves us all. Man, isn't that awesome? And that's what we want. We want our church to look like heaven. All tribes, all tongues, all peoples made equal at the cross and saved by Jesus Christ as we repent of our sins. Do you think Biden can do that for you? Woo! We need to have a special meeting. If you think Trump can do that, I'm not picking sides. I'm just saying, ain't no politician alive can do what Jesus has done. Amen? Oh, I love Jesus. I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers... Now watch this. Look at the word all. We're going to see it five times. Our fathers, those whom... Those whom God exodus, those whom God saved from slavery and brought to a new land through the wilderness journeys, all were under the cloud, the cloud that led them by day. All passed through the sea, Red Sea parts, and they walked on dry land. All were baptized into Moses 
And to understand what that means, he says, in the cloud and in the sea, it was Moses who raised his staff under God's direction. God made Moses the leader of God's people in the Exodus. It was Moses who raised the staff. It was Moses who led the way. It was Moses who went on to the mountain. He made sure the people knew to follow Moses. And all, fourth time, ate the same spiritual food. That's speaking of the manna that fell from heaven. And all, five times, drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Now, really don't have time for this, but there is this crazy Jewish legend. That the rock, when Moses split the rock and water poured out. Uh, that the rock actually followed them through the rest of the desert, uh, giving them water to drink. That's not in the Bible, and that's not true, and that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is simply saying what he says in every book of the Bible he reads, or he writes, that Christ is ever-present everywhere in the Old Testament. It was Christ that provided. It was Christ that was the sustainer. It may have looked like a rock, but that rock was a type and a shadow uh, that was going to be fully fulfilled in the coming of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. We know him now as Jesus, but before in the Old Testament, they didn't know what his name was going to be, but We see Christ all over his people and they all experienced salvation and exodus. They all experienced these miracles that God had done for them in the wilderness. Now here's here's the big idea that we're moving toward just so we don't get too far off track. God is doing something. Isn't it true when we read the Old Testament? Sometimes we read these great miracles that these people experience, and then they turn their backs on God a chapter later, and don't we just want to pull our hair out? What are you doing? Every time I read David, instead of being out to battle, he's up on the roof looking at a naked woman bathing. I'm like, stop looking. What are you doing? No good is going to come from this man. Right? We can see so clearly in the errors of the past. But what Paul is doing here is he's taking the past and he's bringing it into the present, showing how we have the same desires and motivations for idolatry, sexual immorality as they had. It's hard to read their stories knowing what they experienced, but we're in our story now. And many of us are doing the same things that they did and we've got to wake up and we've got to see it for what it is. We've got to kill by God's grace that idolatry that rises up in all of our hearts. If it happened to those who walked through the Red Sea, if it happened to those who saw, I mean, they're in the desert. They've got no food, no water. You might see a rattlesnake every now and again, but there's not a lot of food in the desert. And so God is providing food every day, except for the Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath, they were allowed to pick up twice as much so they'd have food on the Sabbath too. God builds rest into his people consistently from creation throughout Scripture. God provides in a a place that will not provide for them. God shows he loves and sustains his people. Nevertheless, verse 5. With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown 
in the wilderness. Now, some people scratch their head at this and how do, how do we take this? But it's, it's very simple. Romans 9 gives us the complete picture that not all natural Israel is spiritual Israel. Just like, and here's the warning as, as Paul makes it, puts it in the face of the Corinthians and has how God through the Holy Spirit puts it in our face today. Just because somebody claims to be a Christian does not mean they are. Just because someone comes into church and experiences the joy of, of God's people being together and experiences the excitement of, uh, isn't Ryan a great worship leader? No? Okay, Ryan, you suck. You're out. You're gone. No, man, last week, him and Victoria were just up here by themselves, and it's beautiful worship. And this week, we got a full band, and they're singing citizen songs, and it's just as, I mean, God's just so good. But to experience that, to experience baptism in a church, you know, just because you get baptized, that's not a one-way ticket to heaven. It doesn't matter how you live the rest of your life. Baptism doesn't save. Faith in Christ saves by grace through faith alone, amen? We just preach that the sacraments praise God for the sacraments praise God for the reminder of what he's done for us praise God for participation in the body and blood of Christ this is where Paul's going in chapter 11 but just because you're part of a church that practices these things doesn't mean you're going to... There's a whole group of Israel who even though they saw the miraculous works of God, they disobeyed him and they sought out evil instead. And their bodies, this verse right here, overthrown, that means their bodies were strewn out through the wilderness. God marched them around the wilderness until everyone who did not have faith to believe that God had given them the land, they, they, they God marched them around until they all fell dead. And all that was left was Caleb and Joshua and a new generation of young people that chose to believe the Lord. Just because your papa was a preacher, just because you were in the choir for 30 years, just because I had a guy come up to me one time, he said, Brent, he was a wealthy man. And he was mad. This is about 10 years ago. He said, he said, my business is bankrupt. I've lost everything. How could God do this to me? I've paid my tithes all my life. And I didn't say this because I'm a nice guy. But what I wanted to say is your faith is in your ability to pay tithes, not in the God who can sustain you when you don't have anything at all. This is where we're going today. Now, these things took place as examples for us, verse 6. That word example, the Greek is tupas. It's, it's the word we get type. It's where we get our understanding of typology, shadows, examples of what became perfect in the incarnation of Christ himself and where we place our hope now. Not everything in the old, not everything in the God's people's lives were written down. You know, there's a lot of stories I can't wait to hear. Abraham and Jacob and David, Solomon. I can't wait to hear these guys tell all the stories that weren't recorded. But everything here that is recorded is for our good and for our example. 
We have everything we need right here to be connected to Christ and to have the meaning and purpose of that connection in our lives. These are examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be one of four examples. This happened in their life. Hey, Corinthian church, it can happen in your life if you're not careful. Hey, Four Points Church, 2,000 years later, it can happen in our lives if we're not careful. Because the heart is, Calvin and Luther both said at some point, a phrase of this, the heart is an idle factor. We're constantly looking to take Christ off the throne, creator God off the throne, so we can put something less there. That, guess what? If we can create it, we can control it. We're constantly looking for lesser gods that we can control that'll give us exactly what we want. Isn't it funny? This guy from the, the Target Pride stuff who was making the shirts, the big uproar a couple months ago now was over the shirt, Satan respects your pronouns. Of course Satan does. Because he hates you. He wants to destroy you. Any God you create for yourself, anything you want to worship, because we're all going to worship something. We're going to worship creator God or we're going to worship something less. And when we worship something less, guess what? We get to do whatever we want to do. This is the problem with idolatry. Coming from two Latin words, our English word idolatry, icon, image, and worship. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Because it's not just, well, I don't have a statue of Buddha in my house, so I'm good. No, it's the motivations of our heart that God's word is so lofty and so holy and so glorious. We want something less. We have desires that we want to enact on. I mean, who doesn't want to? We'll talk about uh, God's people and the Moabites in a second. They're looking at God who says, be faithful to, to your one partner in marriage all your life. And the Moabites are like, our God says we can have sex with whatever we want, whenever we want. And the Israelites are going, ah, that sounds better. God's way is hard. God's way, uh, uh, it needs discipline. You beat your body into submission. But God's way is best. God's way is where blessing and, and flourishing come from. Doing whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want leads nowhere. It leads to degradation. It leads to perversion. And this is where we are as a society. Did you hear about the guy who spent $25,000 because he identifies as a collie? So he, $25,000 to build a collie suit, and now he goes up and down the street like he's a dog trying to get people to pet him. Do you think when we serve any other God we create for ourselves, it's going to get better or worse? Romans chapter 1 is clear. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God says don't have any idols because anything we put in the place of God is less than Yahweh, the I am creator God. 
And anything less than God will not sustain, preserve, or fulfill us as people. And it will not move us into true blessing and flourishing. It can't. We've studied the Exodus story. God says, don't do it. But what did God's people do? Here's the example he gives in verse 7. It comes straight from, this is a direct quote from Exodus 32, chapter, verse, chapter 32, verse 6. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Play is a euphemism for sexual activity. They've just been delivered from Egypt. Moses is on the mountain. They become impatient. Moses is taking too long. Right? Impatience is something we've got to work through as God's people. Because impatience causes us to do all kinds of silly, stupid things like taking all the Egyptian gold and making a gold cow. And Aaron saying, this is our God that brought us out of Egypt. This is what we worship now. I don't know what happened to Moses. He may be dead. This is our God now. Less than creator Yahweh God. God is insane. And they rose up and they began to worship. Because as humans, it's what we do. And idolatry is so, it's, it's not a statue in your room. It's anything you put in the place of God. It can be your kids. Man, you can be a great mom, you can be a great dad. But sometimes your kids can become idols. And it's good to have kids. It's good to be a family. But when good things become God things, we've moved into idolatry where we don't want to obey God anymore because we want to please the kids. Listen, let me tell you what the best thing for your kid is. Every now and again, they need to be smacked. I'm talking specifically to some of you. Your kid needs a spanking. <laughs> yeah, cancel me. You can't. <laughs> the people in front of this cow, they begin dancing and singing and committing sexual activity. To something less than everything God said not to do, but they wanted to do, which is where idolatry comes from. We get what we want unless by God's grace, the power of his Holy Spirit restrains us from our own desires. For those of you struggling in sin this morning, Pray. You're not going to white-knuckle defeat it. You're not going to. I've been there, done that. That's not the way this works. The way you fight sin, the way you fight temptation is on your knees asking God, telling him, I can't. I need you to help me and allow God's spirit to come in. God says it's not by might, not by power. That means it's not by anything you can do, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. It is God who brings exodus. It is God who brings deliverance. Trust him and trust nothing else. Praise God for the self-help section. Praise God for the breathing, you know, uh, things you can learn. And then praise God for rich dad, poor dad. And maybe you're a better investor now. But ultimately, it's not self-help we need. Self-help doesn't destroy idols. In fact, self-help sometimes makes idols stronger. We need God help. And God, we're going to end with assurance. God will. He is here. You're here to hear that he is here to help you. No idolatry. 
Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. These people who had seen the cloud, the sea, ate the manna, drank. Right, they go to a place called, look at uh, Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. I think you've got that on the screen from last service. Look, when Israel, while Israel lived in Shittim, which if any of you are building an estate and you want to name it something, I suggest that's not a good name. <laughs> but this is where they were. And the, look, this is your Bible. I love all you little old ladies that grew up in Baptist churches. This is your Bible. Don't hate the messenger. <laughs> he shouldn't have said that. The Bible says it. And the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now, when God brought them into this place, he told them specifically, do not intermingle with these other tribes that are in Canaan. And why did God do that? Because he's a huge racist? No, because they had different gods and he knew that his people would be tempted to, to worship the other gods because the other gods, let's face it, in the world's eyes, they're just more fun. They let you get away with more stuff. He knew his people were going to give in to the evil desires of their hearts. That's why he said, protect yourselves from them. Well, they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And so God, in, read verses 1 through 9. It's a great story. God says, Moses, I'm about to kill them all. And Moses is like, please don't do that. Uh, let me talk to them. So Moses is proclaiming the word of the Lord. Stop doing what you're doing. And as Moses is proclaiming, and all of Israel is there and gathered. One Israelite comes through with a Midianite woman who's not his wife and walks into his tent and begins to have sex with her in front. The Bible says in front of Moses and the whole congregation. So what does God do? God raises up a man named Phineas. He goes in, takes a spear and stabs both of them through the belly. And then God sends a plague. And in one day, 23,000 people fall who had given themselves to these evil desires. Because God's not going to put up with that. And here's what I get. Because we live in the softest. I am so disappointed with our country. Some of the softest, weakest, most pathetic snowflakes I've ever seen in my life. Now, we can't work five days a week. We should just work three days a week. Why can't I make 150000 I mean, I've been doing this for six months. I mean, just pathetic. If China does attack, we're, man, I, I'm dependent on you. I'm dependent on you old guys. <laughs> Well, I don't remember what point I was going to make. <laughs> I just wanted to call a bunch of people pathetic. It's the good part about my job. I get to scream at a couple hundred people every weekend. No, here's what I was going to say. Tweeter, some people look at this and they're like, God is so mean. How could God do that? I mean, these were Israelites. Why would God? <laughs> I can't serve a God that's that mean. You haven't seen anything yet. Read Revelation. 
It's going to be way worse than 23,000 when the second coming of Christ comes. And guess what? In that day when the blood flows in the street at the height of a horse's bridle, it's going to be a bloodbath as God brings justice upon all the unrighteous. And guess what? Nobody's going to cry. It's going to be a celebration. The same way when, when they put a bullet through Osama bin Laden's head, nobody wept. We all said, justice! Yes, finally, this is what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ comes with his robe dipped in blood and turn, makes all things that are wrong right and punishes the wicked and brings glory to those who belong to him and his gospel. God is a good God. He's a righteous God, and he's a just God. We're the ones who get everything wrong, and we get what we deserve, and nobody can say boo-hoo. I'm having fun whether you like it or not. <laughs> Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is talking about Numbers chapter 21. We don't have time. Just write Numbers chapter 21. This is when the people, they're out in the wilderness. God has provided. They're living in the desert and they have sustenance every day. Food and water. Where there should be no food and water. And they, and they begin to say, hey, you know what, I miss Egypt. I miss the leeks. I miss the onions. Man, we just had so much more there. Why did, what does it look like to test the Lord? Why did God bring us out into the wilderness to die? How did they test him? By not trusting him. By not trusting that his, he's God. He's good. He knows what he's doing. His plans are better than our plans. But to not trust him is to test him. He's not good. He brought us out here to die. Why, why are we out here? We want to go back into slavery. Let's go back to Egypt and ask if we can get our old jobs as slaves back. God's plan's not good. Our plan seems better. Let's go. Moses, we're going to kill you, and we're going to go back to Egypt. Listen to me. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from this morning. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. Because just like Israel, we get into these moments where we don't understand the will or the plan of God. Right? But today, if you are healthy or if you are sick, Jesus is enough. If you are single or if you are married, right? Because married people would say, married people got problems. Single people would say, single people got problems. Doesn't matter which one you are. Here's the truth. Jesus is enough. It, it doesn't matter if you are tall, short, hairy, or bald. If you're a man or a woman, if you're a boy or a girl, Jesus is enough. And God knows what he's doing. And God says, it doesn't matter if you just lost a business. It doesn't matter if you just started a business. In both situations, in the high times and in the low times, on the mountains and in the valleys, in both, Jesus is enough to preserve you, to sustain you, to bring hope to you, to, to, to shower his presence upon you. We're always looking for something else, some band-aid to fix the problem when the only solution is and always is Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Do not test the Lord God. Do not say, I don't think your plans are good. I don't think you're good. I think you're taking me in the wrong direction. I just want to do what I want to do. Listen, man, God won't give me nothing I want. (laughs) I've read the self-help books. I read them a long time ago, and they all say the same thing. Nothing happens on its own. If you want to end up somewhere... You're not going to get there on accident. You got to get there on purpose. You got to write it down. You got to make it happen. You got to have goals. You got to have plans. Be has big, hairy, audacious. I know how to make stuff happen. And you know what I want? I want a thousand acres with a castle with a moat around it. (laughs) I've been trying to make it happen for 15 years. God says no. So what do you do when God says no? You say, Lord, My dreams and my plans and what I want for my life would probably destroy me. So thank you for your grace. How many of you, 155 billion, 1.55 billion dollars? How many of you gonna buy a ticket? Can't win if you don't play. But when you don't win, thank God. Because that much money so easily destroys a person, a family. God is a good father. He doesn't give his kid a snake. If earthly fathers, Jesus says in the gospel, if earthly fathers know to give their kids bread and give good gifts, how much more your heavenly father? He won't let you get what you want when he knows what you want will destroy you. Don't test them. Trust him. Because the promised land flows with milk and honey. You just got to get through the wilderness to get there. Last one. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. There is an angel in God's charge called the destroyer. We see him three times in the Old Testament. Once in Egypt, every home that did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the destroyer came and killed the firstborn. We see him again when David, God tells David, I'm enough for you. Hear me four points. God tells David, he's, he's a man of war. He's got enemies at the time. He's scared of his enemies. God says, I'm enough for you. And what does David do? He goes and he takes the census because he wants to count all the people of Israel. So he knows where he stands in terms of strength. He's still depending on himself. Instead of exactly what God just told him, depend on me. So God sent the destroyer. We see him again uh, at the prayer of Isaiah and Hezekiah when God hears their prayers and sends the destroying angel. We see him in Psalm 78 too, but that's an army of destroyers, so there's more than one. But uh, Hezekiah's prayer, God sends and destroys the entire Assyrian army without God's people having to lift a finger. God says, this is all about Numbers chapter 16. There was a rebellion by a man named Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They stood up against Moses and they said, we think you're taking us the wrong way. We think we should be the leaders. God said, God told Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out. Moses prays and he says, please don't wipe them all out. Just wipe out the leaders. So he has the Korah and, them and their families stand there before uh, the, the nation of Israel. 
And he says, God's now going to choose which one should lead. And as he says that, the ground opens up and swallows Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and all their families into the ground. They're just, boom, gone. So Moses is like, mm, I guess God chose me. <laughs> and you'd think that people would be like, okay, Moses, we're following him. But then the people rise up in revolt against Moses. And Moses, it's your fault they all died. Because that's just how people are. Somebody rebels against whatever system it is. The person in charge just says, that's not the way we do things. And then it's the person who never started the rebellion in the first place's problem and fault. So they blame Moses that Korah and these guys are dead. And so God sends the destroyer. And 14,700 people fall dead because of their wickedness, their evil, idolatrous hearts. They don't want to do it God's way. Now, I know you don't know anybody like that in 2023. But judgment comes. The wrath of God is now present, Romans chapter 1 says, because we don't do things God's way. So this is the warning and the conviction we don't want to be like these people who had every opportunity, who saw the miracles, who experienced God in their lives. But at the end of the day, chose what they wanted instead. Chose idolatry, sexual immorality. Chose to grumble against God. Chose to test God as if he wasn't who he says he was. He wasn't good with good plans. Now, but here, Paul doesn't leave us here. And we're going to get back into the meat next week. But this... Run to win. Don't box and beat the air, right? Fight the temptations that are going to be in your life. This is the warning. But here's the assurance as we end. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What does that mean? Jesus, Jesus came. And he ended an age, just like he said he would. Remember he said in three days, I'm going to take this temple, I'm going to tear it down. Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. What did that mean? He said, some of you standing here, you're going to see these things occur. So he's not talking about a second coming. He's talking about the end of the Judaic age. It happened within the generation of God touching down on planet Earth. Judaic age ended. The temple, age of the temple ended. Age of the priesthood ended. Age of animal sacrifice ended. Why? Because God tabernacled among us. His name is Jesus, and he's a better temple where we meet with God. He's also a better priest. We don't need a bunch of guys making sacrifices. We have Christ who made the ultimate sacrifice. He's a better priest bringing Yahweh, creator God, and us together through his sacrifice. We don't need to sacrifice any more animals anymore because Jesus is the lamb of God, the perfect lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Judaic age is over, never to return because God's a better, Jesus is a better temple, a better sacrifice, and a better priest. We are now in the church age, awaiting the second coming of Christ. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. The worst thing that can happen, and I know I'm late, but don't, don't miss this. The worst thing that can happen to me, to you, or to anyone is to think we've got it figured out and we know it all. Pride always comes before a fall. 
And God, one of the most famous Old Testament verses, reset throughout the New Testament multiple times. God opposes the proud. Who was proud? Satan was proud. Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. These warnings should bring us to a place on our knees saying, Lord God, if, if, not, if not for your help, I will fall. Help me not to fall. Because we're just like Israel, hard-hearted and stiff-necked. May we not be proud in our Bible knowledge. May we not be proud in our church attendance or in our tithing record. Praise God for all the things we do because the Bible gives us instructions to do them. But our hope's not in these things to puff ourselves up. Our hope is found in Christ and Christ alone. So take heed lest you fall. No, here's the assurance though. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What you're experiencing in your life right now, young man, young woman, old man, old woman, where your heart wants to go to trust in something other than Yahweh and his son Christ. It's common. It happens to everybody. But watch this. But who is faithful? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We don't have to be like the Israelites in the wilderness whose bodies were strewn and fell dead all over the wilderness. That word escape, it's almost identical to the word exodus. If you're in the room this morning and you feel like your back is up against the wall, you feel like the army of Pharaoh is breathing down your back and you've got nowhere to go. You feel like your temptations are so great that you will never overcome. Hear the word of the Lord. He provides an exodus. He always parts the water. He always makes a way where there is no way to sustain you, to help you persevere, to give you the strength you need to be his man, his woman, and take seriously the responsibility of stewarding his gospel in this world. This is who he is. This is what he does. Went to the Grand Canyon a couple years ago. It's so funny to watch little kids look down all over the, the route. I mean, it's so far. As an adult man, my knees, they get, right? they get loose and I get dizzy. It's a long way down. You see these kids walking with their dads and they're just like, they're clinging on with both hands. Some of you may feel like that this morning in your relationship with the Lord. You just feel like you're holding on for dear life. But here's the assurance. Because we all know the truth when we see that little kid wrapped up on his dad's arm at the Grand Canyon. That kid thinks he's holding on for dear life to his dad. But where's the real strength? Where's the real power? The real strength and the real power is in the arm of the father who's not going to let his kid go. There will always 
be. God always provides exodus and a way of escape. So wherever you are this morning, know it, understand it, believe it. May your faith rise up. May your hope be firm, not in testing the Lord, but in knowing even if you don't like where you're at in life right now, his way is best and he is leading the way and you can trust him. He never fails. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your warning. Thank you more for your assurance. We trust not in ourselves, not in our church polity, not in even our culture. Our trust, our hope is in Yahweh, creator God, and his son who became flesh and died in our place for our sin and rose conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. It is by your spirit through the gospel we trust you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.